So please let yourself come back in and sit in a way that's at ease and comfortable. It's a pleasure to be back here after uh, being away almost all month in Yuck Valley retreat, way out in the desert. Um, For those who had the fortune to be there, they froze the first 10 days, but even so it was worth it. Um, And then then the weather got warmer and the tortoises came out and the coyotes came out. The rosy boas and the other snakes came crawling around the meditation hall. The nice kind of snakes. Although they did surprise some meditators. Mm. This evening I would like to speak about freedom in meditation. And for those of you who are at the second of the Yucca Valley retreats, um, you get to listen all over again. <laughs> In the teachings of the Buddha, which the Buddha as the word for the awakened one, it says that just as the great oceans have but one taste, the taste of salt, so too all of the various teachings of Buddhism have but one taste, which is the taste of freedom. And it goes on to say, not merit, that is good deeds, or concentration, or stillness, or even insight, is the purpose of these practices of awareness, mindfulness, compassion. But the sure heart's release, this and this alone, is the reason for the teachings of the Dharma, or the way. So how do we use meditation practice? We come here to Spirit Rock and sit together on Monday nights, and some of you perhaps for day-longs or other longer retreats. A poem that I like to read from a member of this community. Tedious to pack and stretch in the morning, impatient to be on the road where Douglas fir and Douglas lily, bracken and sword fern, teach me lessons in perspective. I once walked the six miles from my house to Kent Lake in less than four hours, but that wasn't my best time. My personal best is eight hours and 15 minutes. That includes time resting with lizards sunning on the rock, writing down a dream remembered staring at Mount Barnaby, listening to woodpecker in the tree that harbors osprey's nest, wandering and listening in the unseen of my life. So the first thing that happens when we come to sit in meditation or really come to a spiritual center as this is, is that we stop. There's a Oh, hi, a baby back there, yes, unless you're the mother of a young baby. But otherwise, we stop. (laughs) And we listen, as we do to the baby's cry, or to our own breath, or to the state of our hearts at this time. We take a rest between the notes of activity, a Sabbath between the worlds of doing, of coming and going. And in this stopping, this stillness allows us to examine the heart and mind. 
And as we do, if we pay attention, we begin to see how dreamlike this life is. The past is gone, erased as surely as if your computer crashed. Just gone, you know. Where is it? Yesterday. Where is the rainy El Nino winter? Where is 1997? Not to speak of your childhood. Just vanished into nothing. There's a day and then it disappears back into the void. The future, the same. What is the future? There is no future. There's just now and then thoughts we have in our mind that says sometime this will happen. The future is just a thought in the present. There's no reality to it. And even the present is evanescent. It changes so quickly. It's here in this moment, this way, and then next moment something new. And in the stillness we see this, we sense this. Now let me tell you a story, a long story that comes from the Mumenkan, which is one of the great collections of Zen stories and teaching stories from ancient China. The story is called Senjo. Senjo was a girl. Jo means girl. Her name was Sen. And she was born into a village rural family. The second daughter in the family. Um, both daughters were quite beloved. But when Senjo was a small girl, her elder sister died. And this frightened her parents and made them all the more attached and concerned and caring and loving about her. She became the apple of their eye. Nearby, on a farm near where Sanjo lived, was a neighbor who was a distant cousin, and he had a son, they had a son, named Ochu. Ochu was born about the same time Sanjo was, and was a lovely little boy. And they used to play together, and as they played together so well, Senjo and Ochu, Senjo's father said, hey, you'll make a good marriage when you grow up. And somehow, the way little children are, they began to think that was real. And they believed somehow they were engaged. And of course, over time passed, they loved one another and felt their love deepened. Because Senjo was also quite beautiful, she had a string of suitors coming to her home and village as she grew older. And one day, as was the custom, her father and mother called her in and said, it is the time for you to be betrothed and leave our house and start your own family. And among all your fine suitors, we have chosen a young man for you, Henryu, from a village nearby, who will give you the best of everything. This was a shock to poor Senjo, who had been secretly in our heart imagining she was almost married to Ochu already. And she wept mightily and was brokenhearted and cast down and depressed, could hardly speak. And when this got passed around the village to others, the news came to Ochu. And his heart cracked open, he wept terribly, and that very night gathered his things together, packed the few things he had, and crept down to the river and placed them in a boat so that he might take this boat and disappear down the river away forever. But as Ochu entered the boat, he saw a rustling in the trees on the bank of the river and looked up, and out of the bushes and trees Step Senjo. He said, oh, what are you doing here? And she said, my heart was broken. I, I knew somehow I could feel that you would run and I could not let this happen. Please let me come with you. And he took her into the boat and they went down river a long way to a remote village and made a house, planted a garden, and in some years had two children. Well, after five or six or seven years passed, they each began to feel terribly sad 
about their parents, their friends, their loved ones in the village. So they said, let us now go back. Surely we will be forgiven. So Senjo and Ochu hired a boat to take them upriver and arrived back at the dock to the village a little after this time, just as it had gotten dark. And Ochu walked down the road to Senjo's parents' house and met and knocked at the door and met her father, who looked at him with astonishment and some anger and said, what are you doing here? And he said, I've come back, father or father-in-law. I've come back because I've brought your daughter back to you. I want you to see the beautiful grandchildren that you've had. And he looked even more astonished and angry and said, how dare you mock me? He was furious. He said, what girl are you talking about? For you see, since the day you stole out of this village, my daughter has been sick in bed and unable to speak a single word. And there she lies. He pointed over to the house. Dochu was equally shocked. He said, no, no, we have two beautiful children. You must see, send your servant, have them come from the river. So the servant was sent down to the dock to bring Senjo back with the grandchildren. And as they were coming back, the father said, do not fool me, look through that window. And sure enough, As Ochu looked through the window, he saw lying there in bed, Senjo. And a start came into his heart, but Senjo opened her eyes, saw him, and raised up from the bed and walked out through the door just as the other Senjo was walking down the road with the two children, and they ran toward one another and embraced, reunited, and were free. And that's the end of the story, this old Zen story. You didn't expect that ending, did you? (laughs) Now, there are many truths and many levels in these old stories. There are the levels of the broken heart and the level of the grave choices that we each must make at times in our life. And the teachings about exile and the splitting of ourselves into parts and the refining of our wholeness. <coughs> now, when this story is told in Zen, it's made into a koan. They ask a question that I'll ask for you. And the question is, who is the real Senjo? Or, more accurately, who is our true self? Where is our true self? The title of the story in the Mumen Khan is Senjo and Her Soul Are Separated. Now, taking one central theme from this story, there's a way in which meditation, like for Senjo, is the end of exile. We have all been split off in some way since childhood or maybe more ancient times, there is a hole in us that we cover over, over, a core that carries pain, disappointment, the big parts of ourselves that were lost, the natural joy of our childhood, the ways that we were always told how we should be. (coughs) And in our exile, we fight against ourselves or we think the thoughts that were planted in us of how we should be from those who are critical or distant or even abusive, how it should have been. We should be more successful, kinder, quieter, speak up, smarter, more enlightened, some way other than who we actually are. And so all these parts of ourselves are left behind. And some of them, this exile is very deep and filled with grief for some of us. And for others, it's the accumulation of many small moments of exile. The scouts were in camp 
In an inspection, the director found an umbrella neatly rolled inside the bedroll of a small scout. As an umbrella was not listed as a necessary item, the director asked the boy to explain. Sir, answered the young man with a weary sigh, did you ever have a mother? So all these different ways, little ones, moment by moment, where we leave, lose ourselves, and very, very big ones, traumatic ones. And if we misunderstand meditation, we can take it as a kind of grim duty that we're trying to make ourselves better and be a better scout and kinder and quieter and smarter and more enlightened because we're not okay who we are. And often we don't know the full extent of our exile until we stop and listen, until we feel and begin to return to ourselves, until the tears come. When the Buddha talked of this separation in another famous story of exile, it said in the texts, his hearers shed floods of tears and by reason of their softness of heart became fully attentive, and then understood freedom. So that gap of exile and the tears that are there are also a bridge to our freedom. We all have these exiled parts. Remember that story I tell about the Japanese soldiers who were found 10 or 15 years after the war ended, the Second World War on those islands? And instead of being blamed for staying there and fighting, they were honored and brought back in a respectful way. Thank you for trying so hard to care for the country that you believed was in danger. We've tried so hard. There are all these parts of ourselves that try so hard to hold it together for a long time. And they too need to be honored with the gratitude that part of Senjo coming back, yes, yes, thank you for all the struggle, for all the hard work to hold my heart, my life together. This past weekend, we were fortunate enough at Spirit Rock to have a benefit done by Maladoma and Sabon Fusome, these West African medicine men. And a few of you were probably here for this it was quite extraordinary. I came for part of it. There were altars set up all over the land. and There was a water altar, the huge ritual that was created over the course of two days. And People went into the stream and were cleansed of things that their heart needed to le- let go of for years. People wrote things and put them in the fire so the fire could carry them away. And there was a big altar of nature so, and beauty so that you could take the beauty back into yourself that you had lost. In the, in the sweat lodge, uh, which was covered with blankets, people were spun around until they were dizzy with their eyes closed and then picked up by others and rocked like a baby. And after they were rocked like a baby, they were placed in the bottom of the sweat lodge and had to crawl under ten bodies like in a womb and come out the other side at the end of the ritual and be newborn. This was after the river and the fire. And they came out and their eyes were entirely different. And they came out into the village and people cheered and welcomed them and gave them beautiful things to eat and smell and shouted their name. What is your name? We welcome you to the village again. It was quite amazing. And it was a ritual enactment of this return from exile, from our place on the earth, our place with one another, our place in the village of life. Now here in the simplicity of this meditation practice where we do mindfulness, mindfulness is also the end of exile. It allows all to come home and gives a great or full range of being to us that we've lost. In the body, the Buddha taught that within this fathom-long body is all of suffering and struggle within this body and mind. 
and freedom and awakening. And so coming home with mindfulness is beginning to re-embody our life as opposed to the separation that we have. You remember that line, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body, you know, from James Joyce. There's a physical dimension to awakening, and you know it when you sit in meditation. There can be releases of energy, the places of tension that we hold that finally get respected with kindness and compassion and allowed to open. The pains we've run from, the fact of our aging and our wounds. And so we begin to honor this body just as it is. Like Joan Tollefson, who is a Zen teacher that writes and speaks about Zen practice, was born with one part of her arm missing. She said how hard it was to be a child and all the other children looking and staring at her and parents saying, shh, don't say anything. And there she said, I went to try to practice Zen and everyone made this circular mudra with their two hands and I only had one hand and I didn't know what to do and no one told me. And as she wrote, she said, I was 29 years old before I first really looked at my arm. But it's not just her. You know, we can drive from one place to another and pull up to the curb and not know where we've been for half an hour or an hour. Do you know what I mean? Or walk out in the spring flowers or the sunset and then wake up and realize we have been in San Francisco or Santa Barbara or some other place, some other decade. And then we come back and say, oh yes. So mindfulness is that presence that ends our exile from our body. We feel pleasure and pain and taste the fruit that are on, that's on our plate and feel the warmth of a cup of tea and leave the meditation maybe and go outside in the break and take a step on the green grass out there and feel more like we're two years old again, just taking a step instead of on our way to the, you know, FedEx to mail something, right? It's the end of exile with our body and it's central to living an awake life. There's also an end to exile with our feelings, with mindfulness. We sit and notice anger and fear and joy and great calm and excitement and desire and loneliness, as if we could bow to each and name them in this practice of mindfulness. Longing, longing, joy, joy, giving each its space, reclaiming this great range of being and holding them with loving kindness. Because that's the only way they come back, you know. If you're unkind, they stay away. It's true, the heart of metta. There were once in the Andes uh, mountain peoples who invaded the lowlanders. And as a part of their plundering of the lowland people, they kidnapped a baby of one of the families and took the infant with them back up into the mountains. The lowlanders from the jungle didn't know how to climb the mountains. They didn't know the trails, how to track the mountain people in the steep terrain. Even so, they sent out their best party of fighting men to climb the mountains, bring the baby home. The men tried first one method of climbing, then another. They tried one trail and another. After days of struggle, they'd only climbed partway up the mountain these vast peaks. Feeling helpless, they decided the cause was lost and prepared to return to their village below. As they were packing their gear for the descent, they saw the baby's mother walking toward them, saw that she was coming down the mountain that they hadn't figured out how to climb. Then they saw that she had the baby strapped to her back. How could that be? One man greeted her and said, We couldn't climb this mountain. How did you do this when we, the strongest, most able men in the village, couldn't do it? And she looked back, smiled weakly, and said simply, It wasn't your baby. 
To come back from exile is to bring back our child, our anger, our joy, our sweetness, our fear, all the parts of ourselves through this attention into this moment as they arise. We don't even have to go looking for them. We just have to be willing to really be present. And they come to us. The same in embodying physical body, the feelings, the end of exile in the mind. So many stories, thoughts, plans, opinions, how it should be, how it should have been, how it will be. And that's a big part of our exile, the stories we tell that keep us from being just here in the reality of the present. The end of exile is not to battle with the stories, but to allow them all with a kind of forgiveness. From Sharon Olds, a poem. I go back to May 1937. I see them standing at the formal gates of their colleges. I see my father strolling out under the ochre sandstone arch. See my mother with a few light books at her hips standing at the pillars. They are about to graduate, about to get married. They are kids. They are dumb. All they know is they're innocent. They would never hurt anybody. I want to go up to them and say, stop, don't do it. She's the wrong woman. He's the wrong man. You are going to do things you cannot imagine you would ever do. You're going to do bad things to children. But I don't do it. I want to live, you see. I take them up like the male and female paper dolls and bang them together at the hips like chips of flint as if to strike sparks from them. And I say, do whatever you are going to do, and I will tell about it. So the end of exile is not the end of the stories, but the bringing the stories too into this heart of the present moment, this mindfulness. And as we do, as we sit quietly and pay attention, we begin to discover how each story, each feeling, each past moment is mind-made, dreamlike, empty. Rabindranath Tagore said, most people believe the mind to be a mirror, accurately reflecting the world outside them, not realizing the fact that the mind is actually the principal element of creation. How many stories we have told, how many ideas that keep us from this moment, the person in front of us, the spring air, the stars on this night. I had a woman that I worked with some years ago who had had a great loss and abandonment in her early life and because of it, tremendous pain that she worked in a really honorable way with over some years. And at some point in our work together, she said to me, you know, if I really let myself feel how much pain and how much outrage and rage there is from this, I don't know what would happen. I would die. I would kill people. The world would end. And when she was ready, we said, well, let's see what happens. So we did it in meditation, kind of. She closed her eyes. And I let her go into that center, that core of the place that she was so frightened to feel again in exile from and feel the depth of the pain. And out of it came rage. I said, get an image for the rage. First, it was a nuclear bomb. But then that was too small, and it became the sun, and the sun expanded and it burned the solar system to a crisp, and it expanded and burned the galaxy and all the galaxies, and the whole universe was in flames. That's how big it was for a while. And after a while, it began to subside, and she was really grieved because she said, there's nothing left but ashes. Everywhere, death and ashes. And it's eternal. It's the end. 
So I said, well, let it be eternal. Stay with it as long as it wants. A year, a century, a millennia. Said nothing's happening. It will never change. It's all dead. I've killed it. Okay, let more time pass. A million years, 500 million, a billion years. How much time do you need? So it's five minutes, right? Ten. Sitting in that place. All of a sudden, after a while, she shook her head. I said, what was that? She said, nothing. I said, all right, let the nothing be. Obviously, it wants to be dead for a while longer. Gave it 500 million more years of death. She shook her head again. I said, something's happening. She said, yeah, there's a little light way over there. I said, you want to take a peek and see? She went way over the far edge of the universe. I said, what's over there? She said, there's a little blue-green planet. I said, what's happening on it? She said, there are all these little tiny green things starting to grow on it again. Do you understand that this is the nature, like our own breath, of life itself? And each body sensation and the life of each body, each feeling, each mind, state and thought and story, opens in space, one after another, in the place of our kind and timeless attention of mindfulness. So this brings us back to the question of freedom. What is freedom? Where is it? Is it in this space within which the fire and the destruction and then the green came? Freedom isn't a thing. It's not even space. It's not a place. It's not a condition. Because if it was, it would come and go, wouldn't it? Freedom in all these, in every place, is simply letting go. But letting go isn't the best word sometimes because letting go feels like it means if I let go of my pain or my anger, I'll get rid of it. So it's not the best language. Maybe letting be is a better language. To let things be in the universe as they are, the suchness of the universe, and to make our peace with it. It's an amazing act to let be. The Buddha commended it to people over and over, this letting go or letting be. Not grasping at views, at the way things should be. Do not form views in this world through knowledge or conduct of how things should be or shouldn't be, what's better or worse than. Let go of all these. How could someone alter the heart of a wise being who clings not to any view? What peace they find. You see, wholeness, or the end of exile, arises in the present moment. Oh, yeah. Turn it off, thank you. Appreciate it. It was probably probably actually a cremation grounds for a moth or something like that. This was the Benares of that moth. So wait a second, just close your eyes for a moment. Right here, there was that word fire, there was all that. Feel it in your body. I mean, we're just being present. Freedom arises and wholeness arises in the reality of the present as it is. And let things be, the excitement, the fear, whatever experience arises, as if you could bow to this too as part of the great dance. It's really so simple. Let yourself come back. My friend Ajahn Sumedho, who's the abbot of this monastery in England and many monasteries, an American abbot, quite a wonderful meditation teacher, he said, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking like most Westerners. (laughs) You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, let go. 
rather than trying to develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the sutras and study the Abhidharma and Buddhist psychology and then learn Pali and Sanskrit and then the Madhyamaka and Prajnaparamita and get ordinations in the Hinayana and Mahayana and Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go. Let go. Let go. I did nothing but this in my practice for years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go. Let go until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya radiating love throughout the world, but instead I suggest just being an earthworm, letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world. Just be an earthworm who knows only two words, let go, let go. You see, ours is called the lesser vehicle, so we have only these simple poverty-stricken practices. <laughs> the freedom of the heart is not far away. It is now or never. And this freedom is also what the Buddha called nirvana. Nirvana means the coolness or the openness of the heart. And my teacher Buddha Dasa in the forests of southern Thailand talked about nirvana as a basic public health measure. <laughs> we should experience nirvana regularly on a daily basis. Now nirvana has a very specific meaning, this freedom of the heart. It means the end of our entanglement with grasping or greed the end of our entanglement with aversion and hatred, the end of our entanglement with delusion and taking things as I or personally, a coolness, the end of exile, a wholeness. And he wrote and taught nirvana for everyone. He said it's a natural condition. It's the cool state of the heart without struggle, those moments when we let go of struggling with the world and come out of exile into the present. It's called the cessation of suffering and he used the colloquial words. He said in the Buddha's time you'd talk about the nirvana of the candle when it finished and burned out or the nirvana when you turned the stove off or the, the, you would heated up a charcoal stove or something and the fire went out. The extinction of grasping, the extinction of that pain. And he said if you look anyone can see that all living things must have moments of this, that we must either let go or die or become insane. The fact that we survive is because there are periods of peace, of letting go, of nirvana, as we sleep, as we let go of things in the past, moment to moment, periods of letting go of struggle. In fact, periodic nirvana keeps us alive and well without any exceptions. You should pay attention to this in your life. We su survive because of its nourishment. Why don't we know or feel thankful for this? Because we haven't paid attention. But when the mind is free from grasping and struggling, whenever that happens, even in a moment, oh, I was really caught in that, wasn't I? When the mind is free, a little nirvana comes in. So how can we not understand that nirvana is for everyone? This is his teachings. Mm -hmm. Now this freedom, and it's not just the little nirvanas, but it's the awakening of the sages. This freedom is found in any moment. Not the freedom to buy the kind of car you want, mm -hmm. you know, or choose where you live. That's only a tentative and relative freedom subject to changing conditions. But there's a freedom that's also available 
even when we cannot change the conditions, when we don't have a choice. It's the freedom of the unconditioned. Remember someone speaking with Ramdas recently, some months ago, because he'd come to do a bit of teachings with Stephen Levine in San Francisco in the fall. The first time he'd really gone out to do public teaching since he was in the wheelchair after his stroke. And his friend asked whether he enjoyed it. And he said, no, not very much. And then he laughed about it. They said, why? He said, oh, because they still want me to be Ramdas, and I'm not him anymore. I used to surf, and now I take uh, baths and rehabilitation therapy. We let go of something, and we become something else. This is the real freedom, and it's there when the chips are down in any circumstance. So Viktor Frankl wrote, We who lived through the concentration camps can remember those who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they testify to the last of human freedoms, the freedom to choose your spirit in any given circumstance. This is freedom in the midst of joy and sorrow, the freedom to be present for it all. Poem from Wendell Berry. The cloud is free only to go with the wind. The rain is free only in its falling. The water free only in its gathering together and its downward courses. In law is rest. If you love the law, the Tao, the way, the truth, if you enter singing into it, you will find freedom as water in its descent. One of my teachers in India, Nisargadat Maharaj, used to say that there are two dimensions to freedom, two aspects of the enlightened heart, emptiness and compassion. Wisdom says, I am nothing. And love says, I am everything. And between these two, my life flows. Wisdom sees things as a dream and yet compassion takes them all because they're here for a moment with such preciousness. Dew evaporates and all our world is dew, said Zen Master Isa. So dear, so refreshing, so fleeting. This he wrote on the death of his daughter. It's so beautiful and it's just here for a time. Don Juan puts it this way, man or woman of knowledge sees and knows. They see and know that they and we are not going anywhere. They see because they know that there's nothing better than anything else. And therefore their only tie to their fellow humans is their controlled folly. Thus a man or woman of knowledge puffs and sweats and looks like any ordinary person and acts as if they do, except that the folly of their life is under control, so whatever happens, they live in peace. There is an end to exile, and it's here as we learn the fullness of being of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. As we learn to let go moment to moment, into the reality of the present. To live in this world, says Mary Oliver, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your life depends upon it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. Each moment is a chance for freedom, the end of struggle, the end of exile, this moment. The circumstances we don't get to choose, but the spirit of the heart we do. 
a story. Your son is here, the nurse said to an old man. She had to repeat the word several times before the man's eyes opened. He was heavily sedated and only partially conscious after the heart attack. He could see the dim outline of the young Marine standing beside his bed. The old man reached out his hand. The Marine wrapped his fingers around the old man's limp hand, squeezed gently, and sat down in the chair. And all through the night, the young man sat in the poorly lighted room, holding the man's hand, offering words of encouragement. The dying man could say nothing, but kept a feeble grip on the hand. The nurse said, don't you want to take rest? But the young man sat there, whispering comforting words. Near dawn, the old man died. The Marine placed the old man's lifeless hand on the bed and called the nurse. And when he was taken away and the nurse returned to offer words of sympathy, the man in uniform interrupted her. What was the name of that man, he asked. Startled, the nurse said, he was your father. Oh, no, he wasn't, the young man said. I'd never seen him before in my life. Then why didn't you say something when I took you here? Oh, I realized there'd been a mistake by the people who sent me home on an emergency furlough. What happened was there were two of us with the same name from the same city. They sent me by mistake, the young man exclaimed. But I also knew he needed his son, and I could tell he was too sick to know whether I was his son or not. When I realized how much he needed to have someone here, I just decided to stay. This is like the teaching of Buddha or Jesus, the same. If any brother or sister is sick and you care for them, you care for me. The freedom that we find is in the moment. Each moment is a chance for struggle or a chance to end exile and fear and conflict. And the goal of meditation is not to be anywhere else. As Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said, people say that practicing meditation is difficult, but there's a misunderstanding as to why. It's not difficult because it's hard to sit in the cross-legged position, (laughs) very often, (laughs) or even to attain enlightenment. It's difficult because it's hard to keep our mind pure and our practice pure. In Japan, there's the phrase shoshin, which means beginner's mind. The goal of practice is always to keep beginner's mind. This does not mean a closed mind, but actually an empty mind, a ready mind. If your mind and heart is empty, it is always ready for anything, open to everything. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. The saints and the sages did not live anywhere else but in this very human body and a life just like ours in the present moment. Nobody was any different in that way. And yet there is, in the midst of this, a reality of freedom in all of it. And you are that freedom. You are the space of that freedom. So when people come after all the kinds of meditation they do, and they say, oh, I came and sat on Monday night and I wept tears because of the grief I have or the loneliness that I've carried for what seems like a lifetime or I sat in that was blissful or joyful, or I was frightened or bored. How great. Finally, a moment of boredom in an overstimulated culture. Or I felt vast space or loving kindness, or I was doing my shopping list, and then I woke up and realized how I'm always doing my shopping list. Whatever they say, I say, yes, how wonderful. Because the idea isn't to have some particular special experience, but rather to come back and live in the reality of the present moment, which we can do. And this 
is the end of exile. It is the great heart of freedom that the Buddha spoke about. And it is always here and now. And we awaken to it and then we lose it, of course. Everybody seems to lose it. Even the Buddha had Mara come back and visit him periodically after his enlightenment, whatever that means. But certainly we do. Right? There is only one place for freedom, and that is in the reality of this moment, the reality of the present. This is the place, the pure land as it's called. And so I end reading from Zen Master Hakuin. He says, all beings are by nature Buddha, as ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there is no ice. Apart from beings, no Buddha. It's us. How sad people ignore the near and search for truth afar like someone in the midst of water crying out in thirst, like a child of a wealthy home wandering among the poor. Those who hear this truth even once and listen with a grateful heart, treasuring it, revering it, gain blessings without end. Coming and going, they are never astray. How boundless and free is this sky of awareness, how bright the full moon of compassion. Truly, is anything missing for awakening right now? Nirvana is always here before our eyes. This very place is the land of the lotus blossom. This very body, the Buddha. So let's sit. At least we'll look like Buddhists. <laughs> and maybe if you let yourself, you can feel it as well. Whatever is present, let the heart be spacious and kind, as if you could bow to this too, the 10,000 joys and sorrows. Yes, this too. Space of freedom. falling down in there, huh? <laughs> I really see these talks and the sitting together as a kind of reminder, not something that we don't know, but actually something we've known for a long time. 
So in the week ahead, as best you can, let yourself take some moments to be still, to walk in the trees, to be quiet a little bit, to sit in meditation, to do that which nourishes that spirit of freedom, the end of exile, the wholeness in a moment of yourself. A couple of announcements and then a little chant to end. Um, there's a woman who came up and said she needs a ride to San Francisco. Is there anyone who can offer a ride to San Francisco? All right, so would you meet her up here by the bell at the end? And then a man, Bruce, came up and said he drives down from Santa Rosa and wondered if there was anyone else comes from that way who could carpool. One couple of people. Why don't you meet... Um, over there by that golden um, painting on the wall, the Santa Rosa people afterward. Mm. So I thank you for coming in the stillness, and we won't do questions or discussion tonight, but we will again sometime soon. Um, I feel so fortunate to come back to this beautiful place and to be together with you this evening, so I thank you. Let's do a simple chant. The word of the chant is Namo. And Namo, like Namaste in India, where you greet someone, the greeting Namaste means I honor the divine within you. Namo means to bow to or to pay respects to. And so we'll chant this word, and as we do, you can imagine what it's asks of your heart to bow to in your own body or mind or heart or the life around you or what you wish to offer your bows to in this world. The things that ask your compassion and those that ask your respect. We'll chant for a little bit and then we'll go out into the spring evening. Na Blessings. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.